Again, we're looking at uh, 1 Samuel 28 this evening, continuing our study uh, where Nick left off. Samuel, 1 Samuel, excuse me, chapter 28. The reason why uh, I'm not doing an overview on this uh, this evening, I'm kind of doing a little bit, um, but since it's narrative, it's kind of easy to get back into the flow of things. And so uh, in the introduction, I'll kind of refresh us on, uh, on 1 Samuel, just kind of in general, and then we'll really focus in on this text itself for this evening. Uh, quite a difficult text, a lot of different uh, interpretations on uh, the meeting of the medium or the witch at Endor. Uh, but nonetheless, God's word will be edified by it. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 28, this is God's word. <clears throat> In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. <clears throat> David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they entered and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. <clears throat> then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, 
I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. <clears throat> Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was, <clears throat> and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have, taken, <clears throat> I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go up on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread for it, of it, excuse me. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is God's word. <clears throat> Just by a brief uh, kind of overview, uh, where we are, where uh, we, we came from in the narrative, uh, <clears throat> we just left the spiritual depravity of the book of Judges. Uh, a whole tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, was nearly wiped out towards the end of the book of Judges. And, and all throughout Judges, we have that common theme, uh, that common uh, <clears throat> Uh, stanza, if you will, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes uh, all throughout. Uh, none of it was according to God's law. They didn't serve the Lord. And now we're presented with Samuel, who was really the final judge of Israel. He was the, the middleman between the judges and the kings, the royal dynasty of Israel. At the same time, this, the state of God's people is still hostile to God through Saul their their leader their king and this is really I, I think the, the beginning of first Samuel is really upsetting and it's meant to upset us and cause this this tension uh, in the text <clears throat> if you remember not not long after Samuel uh, is introduced through his mother Hannah uh, but Eli the priest his sons were an abomination they were not uh, doing the job that they should have been doing as priests of Israel. First Samuel 2, 17, 
It says, Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And so because of their contempt for the Lord, their neglect of acting as priests, uh, Eli's household is rejected uh, as, as the priesthood in Israel. And, and so eventually Samuel is made as the next kind of prophet, uh, priest, the last real judge of Israel before we have the kings come uh, throughout Israel. And Samuel takes up that, that hard calling of proclaiming to the people repentance due to uh, their, their lack of love for the Lord. Uh, if you remember, uh, 1 Samuel 8 uh, is one of, I think, the, the most upsetting passages in Scripture, and I'll explain why in a second. Uh, so you have all the elders of Israel, they're all gathering together, and, and they tell Samuel that they say, we want a king. Uh, we want a king like all the other nations. And so 1 Samuel 8 records, uh, the people came to Samuel and said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of all the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And then later in the same passage, uh, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel tried to be a voice of reason for them. He explained, If you really want a king like all the nations... The king is going to take your sons and he's going to enlist them into the army. The king is going to impose a tax over all that you owe. Is this what you really, really want? Are you sure you want this? And the people said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And the text says, and when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, again, obey their voice and make them a king. Now, why, why is this passage so upsetting? It's because the people don't want the Lord to be king anymore. That's exactly what they say. We don't want the Lord our God to be king over us anymore. We want a person we want somebody, we, we want to be represented like the other nations around us. The, the very pagan nations they were supposed to drive out of Israel, they say, we want to be like them. We, we don't want the Lord to be king. He's not doing enough for us. It's, it's heartbreaking. And although they'll get some good kings, they'll get David and Solomon... They're also going to get some really bad kings as well. And eventually, the nation's going to get divided. And then the nations are going to go into exile at different times. And so that's really what they asked for, what they had hoped for in a kingship, never really ended up uh, being the kingship they needed. But again, it, it points us to Christ as well, right? Christ himself is the king of kings uh, who came, the true king of Israel, the one who is seated now at the right hand of God the Father, who is judging, who is ruling, who is reigning. And so we see God's providence through this as well. What's even more upsetting is the people didn't ask for a king uh, who was after the Lord's heart, a godly 
king. Rather, how did they choose Saul? They said, we want somebody tall and handsome. That was their requirement for a king. Somebody, somebody who looked good. Somebody who looked like a king. That's, that's who we want. We don't care if he doesn't love the Lord. We just want somebody that kind of looks like a king that fulfills that role. And even still, they chose somebody from the tribe of Benjamin. Again, the very tribe that was almost exterminated in the book of Judges. If you remember back Judges chapter 20, uh, they asked this very thing. All the men of Israel gather together and they say, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from all of Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel, Then the people of Benjamin came out together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the swords, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700. Now this entire tribe went out to war against their own brothers and were nearly exterminated into nothing. It's kind of how the the last part of Judges ends with this entire tribe of Israel being eliminated. And now Israel doesn't want the Lord as their king, but they want somebody from that very tribe who refused to expel the evil among their land. Perhaps this person would be a suitable fit. And obviously it turns out, as we look through 1 Samuel and Saul's kingship, he starts out pretty decent, but he plummets pretty far from there. And so we see in verses 1 through 11, uh, sin seizing an opportunity. Again, verses 1 through 11, we have Samuel dying, we have Saul taking it upon himself after the Lord no longer is speaking, there's no more dreams, there's no more visions. So he takes it upon himself to see a medium. And in this passage, the the future King David, he's kind of he's kind of just briefly mentioned for a minute. We're kind of given like a cliffhanger. Look, wait, wait for next week. Wait for the next uh, season to air and we'll get back to David. But now we're focusing back on Saul and his misdoings. And the narrative skills of the writer are really on display here in the text. We're, we're left with suspense. We're left with, we had David, uh, he, he flees to Philistine, he's fleeing from Saul, and now we have no idea what's going to become of David, and we're focused in on Saul. Will, will David fight with the Philistines? Will he fight against Israel? How is this going to play out? <clears throat> in verse 3, if you remember, it says, now Samuel had died. Now this is the end of an age. This is an end of an era. The passing of an era with Samuel dying. No longer are there going to be judges. No longer will there be prophets active in this part of Israel's history. Only in the exile will we get the prophets returning and trying to call the people of Israel back to repentance. But now it's up to the kingship. The very thing that Israel asked for, it's up to the kingship now to decide Israel's fate. And you see with Saul, it didn't turn out for Israel's good. And oddly enough, 
we kind of look at First Samuel as, okay, this is, this is where the kingship really starts. This is where we understand uh, how God wanted the kings to come about. Uh, but if you remember back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, the Lord actually prophesies, uh, explains that the people of Israel at one point are going to themselves ask for a king. So he already knew this was going to happen. Uh, and he spoke it through Moses. And this is what he said. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, so he doesn't say if you say or if you get into the land. He says when and then. When you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Again, whom the Lord your God will choose. Not who you want to choose, but who God will choose. <clears throat> One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So the, the goal, the duty of the king wasn't to be this great despot, this person who goes and conquers and takes everything, but nor is this king supposed to have many wives, oops David, oops Solomon, oops all the other kings who are about to come forth. Rather, in verses 18 through 20, this is the, the duties of the king, was to copy the law of God and have it on his heart. The king was to copy the Torah by hand to meditate on it, to read it daily, to fear the Lord, to not turn aside from the Lord's commandments. This was, this was the duty of the king. It wasn't to lead and acquire riches. It was to be solely devoted to the Lord. Yet Saul himself does the complete opposite. And many in this uh, would see this section uh, what another uh, writer considers as Saul's darkest moment here in contacting uh, this medium, this necromancer. Uh, later in First Chronicles, if you remember kind of retelling Israel's history, uh, it explains what Saul did. First Chronicles 10, 13 through 14. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So even the chronicler recognizes that this is probably Saul's darkest moment right here. Not only did he obey God's law by putting the law of God on his heart, on Saul's heart, but he also turned to a medium, or uh, some translations will say a witch, necromancer, somebody who claims to be able to predict the future and see into the future various things. Again, why, why is this important? Because Saul himself, the king of Israel, committed a capital offense. Leviticus 26, 20 verse 6. 
says, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. And we see God's judgment instantaneous. In 24 hours time, we get a little break in the text, but in 24 hours, Saul and his, and his dynasty, his sons, are going to be killed. And Saul really had this kind of sinful intent by disguising himself and going and seeking this medium. <clears throat> now, obviously, he was probably he was going behind enemy lines, and so he wanted to uh, dissuade the enemy from knowing that was Saul. He didn't go with his army. Uh, he kind of went with a small a group, a small contingent of people. But nonetheless, he knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. He had to disguise himself in order to go see this medium. It took her a while to be able to figure out that it was Saul. And in this time, he probably had hoped, you can imagine he's at night, it's probably cold in the desert, and he's thinking to himself, I really hope that by contacting Samuel, the judgment that Samuel proclaimed on me in tearing the kingdom, perhaps I can conjure Samuel up, because the Lord's not speaking to me, and maybe Samuel can be the prophet, the, the mediator again between me and between God in hopes that God will, will take back what he said. Maybe I can restore myself. <clears throat> this is why he says divine for me, a spirit. He says so uh, indicating that what the, the medium's claim is that she can somehow conjure up beings will give Saul kind of an inline with a, a new prophecy, something that will happen to his benefit. You can see that as she kind of figures out who this is, she's absolutely appalled because it's interesting, this, this pagan woman not only knows that Saul was taking away the mediums and necromancers, but I'm sure she knew that these were supposed to be put to death. And so this encounter with Saul is shocking to her because she realizes, well, if Saul, the king, just killed all the mediums and necromancers or expelled them from his land, I too am going to get expelled from the land. But Saul swears that she won't. And, and he doesn't just swear by himself, but again, what is so upsetting in this passage is that he swears by the name of the Lord as well. He swears by Yahweh, the, the covenant name for God, the I am. He swears by that name that you won't be harmed. He goes completely against God's law once again. And rightly so, as we read this, we should detest what Saul says, what he does. This should, this should absolutely put us on pause and push back against this. But how often uh, in the evangelist church, in Protestantism in general, uh, do many fall into this very same trap? There are many who proclaim to be prophets, who proclaim to be able to foresee things, who uh, claim to be Christians and have these great powers and signs and wonders. <clears throat> and there are many who fall into that very trap, who instead of turning to God's word, will turn to this person uh, because this person can play parlor tricks or trap them and be able to convince them that they're uh, some form of a prophet able to predict their own future. Saul does the same thing uh, as many Christians do in thinking that God's word 
is insufficient. It's not enough for me. I need something more than what God has given to me. There's a popular uh, Christian apologist, theologian, uh, Justin Peters. Uh, He's made his ministry around the world uh, protecting uh, many people from this kind of mentality that you can predict the future, uh, that there's these prophets, that there's these people who know special things uh, that you yourself can't find out. Uh, If you don't know who Justin Peters is, uh, he's a very devout man of God. He suffers from a condition known as cerebral palsy, and so uh, he's in a wheelchair uh, for life. He, He uses crutches from time to time as well. And he deals with those people who say that they hear from the Lord, that they hear this special revelation from the Lord that you as a layperson can't understand, uh, but, but this person can fully grasp and understand by themselves. They often take advantage of people who are dying, who are ill, and say, well, if you give us some money, if you sow a seed of faith, then we will, we will prophesy something for you that you may be healed and prosperous and well. And so Justin Peters himself has encountered these groups of people and tried to dispel uh, that and point to the text and say these people are acting as mediums. So although we don't have these uh, mediums and necromancers as in the Old Testament, uh, it's still a, a very profitable business in not even evangelicalism, but the world as well. There's people who say they read tarot cards and can predict fortunes and all these types of things. So how then do we hear from the Lord then today? Or do we hear from the Lord today? Well, as you know, we hear him in his own word, the very scriptures that are sufficient for us unto all things, everything we need for faith, for life, for practice, for doctrine is found in the scriptures. And Saul would have known that very truth as well. He should have searched the scriptures. He had the Torah uh, available to him, yet he neglected to it. The scriptures, most importantly, they point us to Christ. They help us to uh, see our wrongdoings if we think that we can find people that prophesy for us. They turn us to Christ, remind us that the Holy Spirit is enough, is sufficient to remind us of the things that are found here in the text. Just as the Lord proclaimed judgment against Saul, as we looked this morning and throughout Romans, we have seen that the Lord proclaimed judgment against us as well in our sinful state. Yet again, if you're in Christ, union with Christ, you're free from sin and death. And then secondly, we have Saul seeking his self over the Lord in verses 12 through 25. Again, this this section of the text is very difficult. There's a lot of different interpretations on the appearing of Samuel. Uh, For some reason, in God's providence, uh, he saw it fit to allow Samuel to appear. Now, This has nothing to do with the medium's abilities. It wasn't that she was able to conjure Samuel through some type of magic or seeing through the future or conjuring up the dead. 
as, as you read in the text, uh, the medium is absolutely astonished and shocked that this happened. It proves the fact that she has never actually done this in her entire life. Uh, she is shocked that this dead man has now appeared. And God uses this kind of as a sign of grace to reaffirm the very thing that he had already proclaimed to Saul. He let Saul have one last encounter before his death with Samuel. And again, the woman is just taken back by this exchange, which I believe all of us as well would be taken back uh, by this prospect occurring. <clears throat> We're told that Samuel appears uh, in a robe. Uh, perhaps it's kind of a vague description. She, uh, nobody could really recognize him, but Saul knew who it would be. And the uh, robe that Samuel was wearing uh, was more than likely kind of a, a picture, uh, a way of identifying the same robe that Saul tore off of Samuel uh, when Samuel said that now the kingdom has been torn from you, which is probably why Saul was so astonished and, and absolutely taken back by seeing Samuel in this robe. Again, this happened in 1 Samuel 15, <clears throat> 27 through 28. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. He gave it to David right there in that moment. And so Saul, really, he, he got what he asked for. He wanted to see Samuel. He got to see Samuel. And he was thinking to himself, now, hopefully, I can convince Samuel to reverse the curse. I can convince Samuel now. I've got him here. And now he's going to see that Israel's going to be destroyed, that the Philistines are about to conquer Israel. Now I can be freed from this. And what happens? Samuel stands by the very thing that the Lord has decreed to him. Uh, he kind of reassumes this role. Samuel is dead. The era has, has finished. It's done. It's over with. Now Samuel comes back on the scene and says, As the Lord lives, exactly what I told you still stands. The kingdom is going to be torn from your hands. It's going to be given to your neighbor, David. You and your entire household are going to perish and die tomorrow. And Saul himself couldn't handle the, the burden of this judgment. He falls down. Uh, he, he violates the law even more by consulting this medium. He... And he had this opportunity as well in this moment for repentance. And it really demonstrates that we don't need all these miraculous signs, uh, these miraculous things from God to turn us to repentance. Saul had everything. And he could have said, forgive me, Lord, I am a sinner. Take my life now. Said Saul throws a pity party for himself. He lies on the ground. He, he wails around in his own sorrow. <clears throat> this isn't just a, a minor sin in the life of Saul. This isn't just a, a big, a, a little oops, I probably shouldn't have done that. This is major. This is a covenant-breaking sin. 
And Saul, like the people of Israel, just as Israel chose a king according to man's desires, Saul chose for himself a mediator according to his own desire. He sought a pagan witch, a pagan medium, to be the go-between between him and God. He didn't seek another priest, another Levite, another person in the tabernacle to go on his behalf. He didn't seek a sin offering to appease God for his sin. He took it upon himself. It is just not the way of human nature in general. We take things upon ourselves. We try to appease God by our own efforts. We want answers on our own timeline. We can't be patient and wait for the Lord. Yet thankfully, even though we have erred, just as Saul has erred, maybe we haven't contacted mediums or gone to see a fortune teller, but, but we have desired fleshly things, temporal things that fade away the next day over the Lord. Yet at the same time, we do have a great high priest, a great mediator to go between us, who, who in fact has gone before us on our behalf and paid the sin's price. <clears throat> and so the medium responds to Saul's weakened state. Not much is really explained as to why he hasn't eaten. Saul, Saul was a fairly pious man. Perhaps he was fasting, a very common practice in the Old Testament and the New. Perhaps he was just fasting, hoping uh, that some piety would, would earn him some favor with God. Or perhaps he was just so overcome with the pronouncement of judgment knowing death was on his doorstep, that he just collapses to the ground. We're, we're not sure. So the medium, this pagan woman, prepares a feast for a king. And it's ironic because this feast is nothing compared to when Saul was inaugurated as king. 1 Samuel 9, 22-24, Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it, it set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what is kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you may eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now, Sam, now, in the text, Samuel is absent. Saul has no great banquet feast. He's with this woman whom really he should have exterminated according to God's law. And he's now consuming his last meal, not at the table of the Lord, not at the table with Israel, but at the table of a God-hater, someone who doesn't love the Lord. Again, it's, it's, it's upsetting to look at this text. Uh, it's not just upsetting because a man goes and seeks this witch, but it's upsetting because he, he wants nothing to do with the Lord. It's really this, this contrast between Saul and David. David is a man after God's own heart. 
Saul should have been a man after God's own heart, yet he pushes it all aside. The kingship of Saul from the get-go is really like pushing a boulder off of a mountain. The boulder doesn't really start to move, start to gain traction until it's getting further down the mountain. So Saul's kind of demise starts at the top, and now it's just gained full speed until his eventual death in the coming chapters. <clears throat> Yet at the same time, although the kingship has failed, although we're kind of left with this, this drama, this tension, what's going to come of David? Now, as we know, Saul's going to die. Is David even going to actually be king? We know that David himself will be next in line. And although David will also fall into horrific sin with Bathsheba, uh, we know that his offspring, the, the seed of David, God himself promises that David will have a royal, eternal dynasty that will last forever. And who do we see that in? We see that in Jesus Christ himself. The branch of David the true king of Israel. And so Saul's demise, his downfall, makes us look forward to the blessed hope of Christ Jesus as our king. Again, a kingdom that has no end. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We long for God's kingdom. Even if we had the best possible king over us right now, who could be as perfect as possible, it would pale in comparison to the kingship that we have in Jesus Christ. A kingdom that will descend from heaven. Such a beautiful passage in Revelation. Thinking about that, seeing that, longing for that. A kingdom that will have no end. A kingdom that we ourselves will dwell with the king. So although Saul crashes and plummets, let us remember that we have this hope in Christ Jesus. Let us remember that we serve such a greater king, and we look forward to his coming. And with that, let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, again, <clears throat> we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is absolutely sufficient for us, that it is all that we need. Lord, we don't need to turn to human beings who claim to prophesy to us and for us, but Lord, we can turn to our true prophet, the Word incarnate. Lord, you spoke in former days through your prophets, but Lord, you have spoken finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to always cling to him, to seek him, to know him, and to love him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.